Well, every so often we as human beings will come across information that radically changes our understanding of things. It changes our worldview. We get information and uh, we didn't see it coming, but when it hits us, it changes us. We've even come up with a special phrase for this and we say, this blew my mind. This blew my mind. I can't believe what you just said, what rolled out of your mouth. What you just said, my mind's exploding right now. Now, one of the exciting ways that people have their minds blown, and it's happened to me, is when you encounter spiritual truth, biblical truth that you didn't know that just changes everything. Has this ever happened to anybody where you encountered biblical truth and it was like, whoa, that is amazing. It's happened to me. It's happened to me a million times. But I want to tell you about the first time it happened to me. Literally, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was... uh, I got saved, I told you, right in 1987, right before my 17th birthday, I was, uh, God was gracious to me. And anyway, I was up in my room one night and I was reading the Bible. I I remember when I grabbed my Bible down and I'm like, where are the 10 commandments? I couldn't find the 10 commandments. I didn't know where they were and I was just so frustrated. I didn't know how to use my Bible, but I wanted to read it. By the way, you know where to find the 10 commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Took me 37 years to figure that out, but I I finally, now I know where that, I'm just kidding. Um, But I was up in my room one night and I was reading the scriptures and I ran across this passage and it it forever changed me. John answered them, this is John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, and this was the part that blew me away, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I grew up in the church, so I knew how great John the Baptist was. I knew who Jesus was, but for the first time, the Holy Spirit was in me. I was born again. I was an infant in the, in the Lord. But now the Spirit was taking the Word of God and making it come alive. And this was the, one of the, the, the very first passage. I literally was stunned. I, I was like, oh my goodness, John the Baptist, as great as he was, he's saying he's not even worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' shoe. How much greater is Jesus? God was doing a wonderful work in me. Now, the reason I tell you this is because today we are going to be looking at a passage where Jesus confronts his disciples with spiritual truth that is absolutely mind-blowing to them, and I mean it. As a matter of fact, it's such profound truth, it actually takes the disciples years to come to grips with what Jesus has said. So church, it's on that note. It's my honor to take us to the Word of God today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 15, and we'll be starting at verse 10, and we'll go through verse 20. So church, hear the Word of God this morning. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us, the parable about what goes into your mouth and what comes out of your heart. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Amen. Church, may these words transform our lives today. So the context of this passage is pretty clear. 
The religious leaders had come all the way from Jerusalem to seek Jesus out because they had heard about him. He had been making waves. And when they get to him, they ask him this question. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to, Je to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Jesus had been breaking the tradition of the elders, so much so that they sent a delegation to him to find out what's going on. Now notice it's the tradition of the elders. This is not the same as the word of God. The tradition of the elders were those rules and regulation that the elders, the elders of Israel came up with so that people wouldn't break the law, wouldn't break the word of God. So imagine the word of God as a line right here. These guys were starting to set up lines here and here and here. They were setting up tons of lines all over the place in order to keep people from breaking God's law. There's just one huge problem. These traditions were often formulated by men who were absolutely spiritually dead. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. These were men with hearts of stone who neither knew God nor loved him. Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful on the outside. They looked religious on the outside. If you were going to think anybody's heart is right with God, it's the religious leaders. Look at them. They look amazing. But he said, no, they're whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside. They're dead on the inside. And these were the men that were making the rules. And as you can guess, these rules in many ways were bad. Many of the traditions that they came up with actually violated God's word in one way or another. In many other cases, the traditions simply added unnecessary religious burdens to the people's lives. Today's passage is a perfect example of this very thing with regard to washing one's hands before you eat. Now, God's word does talk in the Old Testament. There are times of ceremonial washing. But washing of one's hands before a meal had no direct basis in Scripture but it had become a powerful tradition, and it was no small matter. Dr. John MacArthur has pointed out that there were some rabbis during this time who taught that demons could attach themselves to people's hands when they slept, so that when they woke up the next day, the demons were there, they couldn't see them, and if they didn't wash their hands and purify their hands, and they touched food and then ate it, the demons would get into their bodies through that food. This is what was being taught. MacArthur goes on to say, um, other rabbis taught that it would be better to walk miles out of one's way to secure water than to eat with unwashed hands. There's even an incident where a rabbi who had been arrested used the water given to him in prison to stay alive. He used it to wash his hands, claiming he would rather die than break the tradition of the elders. So the washing of one's hands before a meal is a huge deal 2,000 years ago in Israel. To not wash your hands before you eat is a sin. It's a violation of the tradition of the elders. It's a sin in the, the elders' eyes. And so these men travel from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. By the way, this is the first recorded incident in the Bible where Jesus calls the religious leaders hypocrites to their face. You want to know the irony of that? The irony of that is that calling the Pharisees hypocrites to their faces isn't even the most mind-blowing thing Jesus says in this passage. Not even close. You want to know what the most mind-blowing thing he says? It's this right here. And he called the people to himself and said, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In this little parable, Jesus reveals one of the most profound spiritual truths in all the scriptures, and that is this. It is the evil within our hearts 
that truly defile a person before God. You're not defiled because you ate pork or some other food product, just as you are not defiled because you failed to wash your hands before you ate or before you eat. And some of us would be in trouble because some of you had bacon today and you didn't wash your hands before you ate. You'd be in double trouble. Here's the deal. That was a little joke. <laughs> it's hard. To, it's hard being. It, I, I give it up for comedians. It's hard being funny. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't even supposed to be funny, and you guys are laughing at us. What do you know? Here's the deal. All of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were never more than outward symbols pointing to deeper spiritual realities. Let me explain. For example, the ceremonial washing of the body was a visual reminder to the Israelites of the greater spiritual need of the washing of one's heart. Every time the Israelites, there was a prescribed ceremonial washing of some kind, it should have been a reminder that it's not the outer man that makes you pure before the Lord. This is just a reminder that you want to wash your heart with repentance and, and ask God for forgiveness and seek repentance in your heart. This is what God is looking for. It's pointing to that. Or take, for example, the avoidance of certain foods. Why would God have the Israelites avoid certain foods? This was a visual reminder of the greater spiritual need to avoid that, that which truly defiles a person. If you're going to avoid anything, avoid sexual immorality and pride and greed. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of your heart. It's always about the heart. God is always concerned about the state of your heart. The outer man, the outer woman counts for nothing. In Psalm 51, we read about King David. After he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her, his wife, or his, her husband, um, Uriah, David confesses in Psalm 51, and no pun intended, but what is the heart of David's prayer? The heart of David's prayer is the heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's always about the heart when it comes to our relationship with God. David knew it wasn't clean hands, but a clean heart that the Lord truly desired. It wasn't a clean vestment or a clean outer man that mattered. It was David's heart. The fact of the matter is, we see this all throughout the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, just a few verses later, David writes this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. God, if you wanted animal sacrifices endlessly, I would bring them. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Consider the prophet Micah. He wrote this. We used to sing this in InterVarsity when I was in InterVarsity with What Shall I Come Before the Lord? It was a, somebody made it a song and it was awesome. But with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? How about this? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? I know. Shall I give the firstborn of my, uh, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God, what is it that you want? Micah answers the question. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's always about the heart when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Now, back to the disciples in our passage today. To fully appreciate just how mind-blowing Jesus' teaching is to the disciples about what comes out of their heart is what truly defiles them, consider this. After Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, spends 40 days with the disciples, then ascends into heaven, and then the disciples go and they start spreading the gospel around the Roman Empire, 
Even then, the disciples are still struggling with this concept about what truly defiles them. And how do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 10, we read this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. See, Peter was still struggling with the idea that food made you unclean. He was still struggling with the idea that I could go and minister to Gentiles, that Gentiles were part of the kingdom because they were an unclean people. No, Peter, what makes a person unclean is not if they're a Jew or a Gentile, not about what they put into their mouth or what they put onto their body. It's about the state of their heart. So to say that the disciples' minds were blown, well, this is an understatement. It's not surprising then that the Bible has much to say about the heart. Let me give you one verse today. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. In other words, of first importance in your life, above all else, above all other priorities, with all due diligence, in other words, with everything you've got, with the utmost of care, guard your heart. Guard your heart. What is really interesting, if you want to get to know somebody, just look at what they guard. Look at what they protect. Because where they, show most, they're most vi- where they are most vigilant is what is most important. For some, it will be their health. For others, it will be finances. For others, it will be possessions. For others, it will be people. And there's nothing wrong with being vigilant over these areas. I want to be vigilant over my finances and over my family and so on and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. But for those of us who are believers, if ever there were an area where we should be most diligent, most vigilant, It should be the state of our hearts before the Lord. Amen? Is that we are a holy people in a fallen world. You be holy because I am holy, says the Lord God. We are to be a holy people set apart, called out of this world, living our lives for him. See, here's the deal. If we open our hearts to the wrong things or make space in our hearts for that which does not belong, it won't be long before we reap the fruit of that decision. And oh, by the way, Jesus himself spoke often about the fruit that flows from the heart. Let me give you one example. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know what's important to a person? Look at what they protect and look at what they talk about. What they talk about and what they protect is what is important to them. If you want to produce the type of fruit that is not only pleasing to the Lord, but will last on into eternity, then above all else, guard your heart with all vigilant because that is where good spiritual fruit is produced. Now notice what the second part of this verse says, and it's incredibly important, and this is where we're going to get into some application. So hold on, brace yourselves, because this is going to get intense. The second part of this verse says this, and the evil person out of his evil treasures produces evil. And that very truth, folks, is on full display in our culture today. Our culture is embracing and openly celebrating things which the Bible says are shameful for believers even to talk about, even to mention. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they, that is the wicked, do in secret. 
You see, the problem with our culture right now is that we have progressed. We're a progressive culture, and we have progressed to the point where, that, where the wicked things that were once done in secret are now being done for all to see and even being celebrated. What's being done is not for just adult eyes only, as there is a radical agenda to indoctrinate the hearts of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren from the very earliest of ages. Folks, what this generation needs now is for the church to guard their hearts. But listen, we need to protect the next generations. The Bible says a good man leaves his inheritance to his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. In other words, a good man, a good woman, isn't just thinking about their generation and the strength and integrity of their generation. They're seeking to make the generations after them just as strong, or if not stronger. All of this is that powerful reminder that we not only have to guard our hearts, it is a powerful reminder that we must spare no expense to guard the hearts of our children and grandchildren who are not yet capable of doing it for themselves. And sadly... This is happening before our very eyes where children are being taken advantage of because of the wicked schemes of adults. I just read last week about a very courageous young woman. I mean courageous young woman. Her name was Chloe Cole. That's a picture of her. Did anybody read or see about her this week? Yeah, pretty uh, fascinating. As a young teenager, she was not protected. Her heart wasn't protected by the adults in her life, and she was allowed to undergo radical medical procedures to transition to being a male. She now regrets having been allowed to make such decisions. She, in this article, said this, I really didn't understand all of the ramifications of any of the medical decisions that I was making. How could you, my dear? You were a child. We failed you. We failed you. I don't know if I'll be able to fully care a child, and I might be at an increased risk for certain cancers mainly cervical cancer. Bless her heart. We failed her. We did not protect her. And yet now look at her. She's leading the way. What courage. What courage. And she came out, and this went national. This went across the country. So she put herself on the line to speak truth. The great irony is that in our culture over the past three to five years, there has been an obsession with justice, social justice. Folks, you want to know what true justice is, it's adults protecting children. Amen? That is true justice, is when adults protect children, not take advantage of them. And yet we are letting people in our culture deceive and lie to our children about things that would have been criminal just 30 years ago. And they're getting away with it scot-free. Our culture needs to be warned about what Jesus had to say about protecting children, the hearts of children. Folks, the whole point is, we can't just guard our hearts. We need to guard our hearts. But we have to be protecting the hearts of those that are coming up behind us. What did Jesus say about children? Matthew 18, 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone, a great millstone, fastened around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. You mess with children, you're messing with Jesus. It's as simple as that. So here's the question. The question is, what does it look like to guard our hearts? Because we better know what we're doing. Because we not only need to do it for ourselves, we need to do it for the generations that are coming up behind us. And we need to do it well because the enemy is on the attack. And while there is much that I could say on this, the Bible has to say on this, 
I want to give you one very practical but easily overlooked way when it comes, what it, what it looks like to guard your heart. Now, here's the deal. So often when we think about guarding our hearts, we think about guarding our hearts from things like sexual immorality, greed, pride, anger, and similar such things. And rightly so. And rightly so, as there are no shortage of verses that tell us to guard our hearts against these very things. But there is an area where, and you're going to see where I'm going with this in a second, so hold on, strap yourselves in. There is an area where the hearts of Christians are being attacked, and I don't even think we fully recognize it. How do you guard your heart in this generation, given the state of our current culture? You guard your heart, folks, by anticipating intimidation. Guard your heart against fear. Because our enemy is a liar, he is a deceiver, he is a murderer. And one of the things he does is he instills fear, not faith, in others. He is the father of lies. He lies. And one of, the thing, one of the reasons he lies is because he wants you and I to be not on solid footing. He wants us to be scared. We cannot lose sight of this. We see this happening in the Bible. The book of Galatians, it happened to Peter. He didn't properly guard his heart. What did he do? He fell flat on his face. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Guard your heart against fear. Fear is knocking at the door. And it's looking for a home. Of course, this wasn't the first time this happened to Peter. He denied Jesus three times, right? What did Peter say? Jesus, if everyone else denies you and leaves you, I will go with you. I will die with you. So confident is Peter. Guard your heart, Peter. Fear is knocking at the door. What did Jesus say to him? Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. It is a powerful reminder that if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to you and me. And here's where I'm going with this. I'm, I'm going to land the plane, so listen very carefully. There is, in my opinion, a culture of radical intimidation being manifested before our very eyes in our culture today. Would you agree with me? Absolutely. And by the way, if you're, don't think the intimidation that you're seeing just is political in nature. It is spiritual in nature. It is spiritual in nature. Our enemy wants to use intimidation to get his agenda across. And if there's one group of people he wants to be afraid so that they'll keep their mouths shut, guess who it is? You and me, Christians. Let's intimidate the church so that they remain silent because not only will we ruin their generation, then we got the next couple of generations. Until then, or until when, God raises up a generation that is courageous enough to stand up for what is right. Do you know what this generation needs, folks? It needs Men and women who know the difference from, between right and wrong and who have the courage and moral conviction to stand up for what is right, even in the face of intimidation, sacrificing whatever it takes to do what is right. Amen? Amen. The issue of intimidation is very real. This can mean everything from physical intimidation to the destruction of one's property to the loss of your job to the restrictions of your freedoms, and the list goes on and on. We have seen this very scenario play out with the Supreme Court justices that just courageously overturned Roe v. Wade, with people now going to their homes, threatening them with assassination. By the way, our Constitution allows for the peaceable assembly. Our forefathers who wrote the Constitution understood that there needs to be a mechanism by which the people can complain. 
And the mechanism in their wisdom they gave, it was peaceable. You can peaceably assemble to express your grievances. And I don't care if it's coming from the left or the right. Folks, you and I do not want to live in a country where our politicians and our judges are being threatened. That exists in countries that are lawless. That's not the world we want to live in. Amen? Back to Roe v. Wade, I just want to say a, a, a quick comment on this. It's about the heart, right? That's what this whole message today is about. It's about the state of the heart. Let me ask you a different question. What is true religion? What is true religion? James says true religion is this. It's looking after orphans and widows. <laughs> true religion cares for the defenseless. It cares for the needy, the weak. This is what true religion does. It is courageous when people are being taken advantage of, it intervenes and says, no more, no more. I just read a quote about a month or two ago, and it was from somebody, it was Wesley or Spurgeon, it was one of the guys a couple hundred years ago. And the quote was this, the safest place for any person is in their home. It should be. When you're in your home, you should feel absolutely 100% safe. There's no greater assault upon a person is than when somebody breaks into their home and assaults them in a place that should be safe. But then he says, there's one place safer that should be safer than the home, and that's the womb. If we think it a great assault that a man breaks into another man's home, the place of safety, and assaults him, if that's a great assault, how much more should be the assault upon the unborn child in the mother's womb? True religion protects the, the most vulnerable. True religion, and, and again, it doesn't just look out for its generation, what's right in this generation. We are looking out for the generations behind us, and we're going, there are people that want to take advantage of you, and we're not going to let it happen. Not on our watch. Not on our watch. In case you have forgotten, the Bible calls those of us who are believers to stand firm. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Guard your heart. Be watchful. Guard your heart because fear is knocking at the door. Your enemy is going to want to intimidate you to keep your mouth shut. He wants you to keep your mouth shut in your homes, at your places of work, in your neighborhoods, wherever it is. He wants you to be afraid so you don't say what needs to be said. Be strong. Stand firm in the faith. Oh, here's a misogynistic statement by Paul. This statement would not fly in today's culture, but here it is in the Bible, act like men. Do you know why it says act like men? Because men act a certain way. Amen? Men are to be strong and courageous. We are to lead and provide and protect. This is what men do. And by the way, I'm going to step on some more toes here. I do have people come to me and they go, why aren't there any women on our elder board? Okay, the position of elder, pastor, and bishop in the scripture is the same, one in the same office. And it is clear that it is to be men. But women, you know what I tell women? You don't want to lead. You know why? Because women, when they step into leadership, are often great leaders. You're great leaders. And you know, but you know what happens to men when you lead? We become passive. And passive men are bad for culture. Passive men are bad for the church. We love to go home and have you cook our meals and do our laundry, and we'll love nothing more to come to church and have you do everything else here too. Ladies, don't let your men get away from their responsibilities, whether it be in the home or in the house of God. You have been called to lead men. Act like men. Amen? 
Be strong and courageous. Act like men. This is what we've been called to. Again, I'll say it again. What the world needs right now are people who know the difference between good and evil, whose hearts are right before the Lord, and whose hearts are steadfast and immovable, overflowing with courage and conviction. Folks, guard your hearts. Fear is knocking at the door. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. You want to know what else defiles a person? These things. Faithlessness, fearfulness, and cowardice. Cowardice defiles a person. Fearfulness, faithlessness. What this generation needs now are people whose hearts are right before the Lord. People who aren't cared about the external superficialities of religion. People who are serious about practicing true religion before the Lord. By the way, early Christians, you know what they would do? It was Christians that always lead the way when it comes to practicing true religion. Our forefathers in the faith would be the ones that would often go to the places where babies were discarded, the garbage dumps, and others down through the centuries and save those babies. True religion looks after orphans and widows. It looks after those that are most vulnerable. True religion does not care about, ex does not care about external superficialities. It does not care the cost that comes with doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. True religion does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, no matter the cost to them. And folks, that is what this generation needs. This is what our children need, our, our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Amen? Amen. I finished with a simple question today. Are you guarding your heart with all vigilance? Guard it, folks. Guard your heart and be bold in this generation because we're going to be called home soon. And what we do now is going to echo not only into eternity, but to the generations coming up behind us. 